Welcome to the podcast of Redemption Church. I'm going to read a passage first, share a little bit of my story, and then um, we'll talk about Pentecost and the Poor People's Campaign, which is a big piece of uh, my work. So uh, next week is Pentecost. Um, I'm going to cheat and jump ahead a little bit from that story. If you recall the story of Pentecost, it's after Jesus' resurrection. The disciples are in an upper room. They're very scared. Jesus shows up and talks to them and uh, promises them the Holy Spirit. There's tongues of fire that come and surround up above their heads. And then they go outside and they start preaching and speaking in every language. Everyone could understand what they were saying no matter where they were from. And Peter gives this big, uh, a very big sermon uh, in Acts 2. Um, and some people are like, these guys are drunk. Like, they're a little confused. Other people immediately join the church. And so this is where we're, we're kind of picking up immediately after uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So reading from the book of Acts. So a little bit about my story. My name is Joe Paparone. That's a Sicilian last name. My dad is Italian heritage. My mom was Irish heritage. So uh, what do you think of when you think of those two ethnicities? Catholics, when you think of religion, right? For the most part. A couple of Irish Protestants, they've, they've maybe had a little bit of conflict around that. Um, but we went to Mass growing up. I went to church every week. Uh, we did not pray at home except for grace before meals. We did not talk about faith. I don't even think we had a Bible until I was a teenager in the house. But we did the church thing because that's what you do. Um, I was always interested in it uh, in terms of like, what is actually going on here? What is, what is happening? I had questions. I was an altar server, so I had sort of an inside look into how the, the, all the different practice of the Mass went. We had a lot of fun with that, by the way, as well. Um, is a, is a really terrible idea, uh, quote-unquote terrible idea to give 12-year-olds like a bunch of important religious things and then like let them loose during the middle of the service. Um, but yeah, I, I was growing up, one good thing, uh, many, of the many good things that my parents instilled in me, um, was a passion and concern to help other people. And I found that initially in the Boy Scouts. Um, I am an Eagle Scout. Um, but there I met a number of adult leaders who really inspired me. They were the guys I wanted to be like. Um, and they were people of faith and openly talked about that. Um, and so that was, uh, you know, churning in my mind as I would go to Mass. And they were Catholic, but I would go to Mass and then I'd, you know, be doing Boy Scout stuff and talking about uh, Jesus and, like, serving others and, and all this stuff. And it was starting to click with me a little bit. 
I went to college in Albany uh, to study music. I'm a saxophone player. Started talking to some of my classmates a little bit about faith and helping others and changing the world. Uh, and went to an evangelical church on a Saturday afternoon for an evangelism workshop. It worked out for me, but this is not the way that you should introduce people, new people, to a church, by the way, by bringing them to an evangelism workshop. Uh, because I, while I met a bunch of really remarkable folks, it was kind of like a 201 level class. It was talking about sharing your faith, and I still didn't really know what my faith was at that point. It was also there where I first really encountered people who talked about Catholics as though they weren't Christians. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, I thought we were all on the same team here. I, didn't, I just didn't know history. I didn't really know the differences of any of uh, these faith traditions. But I was really compelled by the people there. They had a, a, a passion and a fervor and a, a zealousness about their faith um, and, and really truly believe that the gospel is a message to transform the world. And I was like, I'm in. I'm, I want to know more about that. So we started attending this congregation, uh, became my home church, um, had a profound faith conversion experience in that church. And I was baptized again uh, there. I had been baptized as a baby in the Catholic church and then as an adult made the conscious decision to join that church. Um, there was a, a group of young people. We were in our early 20s um, and we were studying together and um, we hosted missionaries from around the world, uh, particularly Bosnia and Cambodia, and developed partner relationships. Uh, I led three short-term uh, mission teams to Cambodia where I experienced the most grinding poverty I've ever seen in my life. Um, but that's where I felt a call to ministry as well. Um, at first, I did think I wanted to be a, a missionary overseas. Um, that, that changed over time, shifted as that call became clear to me, but that, that was sort of what set me on the track. Uh, so I went to seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. It's an evangelical seminary. Um, I did a, a distance program, but my, my cohort was people from around the world. I got to I just immersed in really amazing and broad conversations about faith and theology. And while I was in seminary, my theology and my politics were shifting. And by the time I was finishing up seminary, I called the folks at the denomination to say like, hey, this is the kind of ministry I want to do. Sort of like the church as a center of community life and community development. Uh, is there a place for that in this denomination? And they said, no. <laughs> so long. Uh, so I was cut loose and trying to figure out, uh, well, what do I do now? I've got this seminary degree that no one cares about. Like, it's really not fun to talk at parties about theology and Bible mostly. Um, but I, this is in 2011. And... Uh, in our world, Occupy was happening. And suddenly there's this like burst of activism energy uh, that is happening all over the country, including where I lived in Albany, like just down the road, which is the state capital. Um, I didn't really get involved in Occupy, but it was churning in my mind, like something's happening here that I wanna pay attention to and be part of. And so I started getting involved in activism in Albany. Um, and I would tell folks, I'm interested in uh, faith community, participation in, in this justice work. And they were like, oh, you should meet, there's a Catholic worker house in Albany, the uh, tradition of Dorothy Day. Um, and then there's a group called the Labor Religion Coalition. And so through the Catholic worker, they were really involved in accompanying and supporting undocumented immigrants. They would um, help people basically get established. When you're undocumented, you're kind of terrified to really have interface with any government or seemingly government organization. Um, and so having someone who will kind of guide you through those things and, and be with you through that process is really important. But also you have to like check in with the ICE office regularly. Um, this is pre-Trump uh, and pre like the most vicious levels of our immigration enforcement, but uh, walking with people through that process and supporting them. 
The Labor Religion Coalition, I showed up to an action once, not really knowing much about it, uh, and it was a budget hearing for our state, at, at our state capitol. And a group of clergy walked in as witnesses to this budget hearing. It's, it was open to the public. And right as the hearing's starting, everybody stands up and uh, <coughs> different faith leaders start speaking, calling on legislators to have uh, justice and uh, a moral budget, right? We have signs that said a budget is a moral document. Where your money goes, that indicates what your values are, what you care about and what your priorities are. Uh, and so a budget is a moral document in concrete numbers, right? Uh, and they escorted us out. Nobody was arrested that day. But then we prayed in the, in the state capitol. And I was beginning to think, okay, this is something I could, I could be down with. Um, and eventually a job opened up and, uh, with the Labor Religion Coalition. And I applied and, and was hired, which is pretty cool. Um, all in this same time, uh, as I was encountering different social justice movements and organizers in Albany, uh, the people that I was identifying that I wanted to work with uh, were forming a new group called Capital Area Against Mass Incarceration. So this is another piece into this. Um, and we were just getting our feet uh, on the ground. We had done a few actions, mostly around state legislation, to end solitary confinement, to raise the age of criminal accountability, to stop locking up kids. And then the summer of 2014, and Eric Garner was killed, Mike Brown was killed, John Crawford, Tamir Rice, and, 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 right? And we weren't a Black Lives Matter chapter, but we were a multiracial group. We were a multi-generational group. And people are pouring into the streets, furious about police violence and want to do something. And we were the place that suddenly, like, they were, oh, you're against mass incarceration. Like, what, what should we do? And so suddenly we're having these actions and there's hundreds of people, you know, and we're overwhelmed because we're just this tiny little group that had been doing some legislative advocacy. But we, we dove in on that playbook, right? We had disruptive public actions. We were taking the street. We were uh, holding die-ins in, in the mall around Christmas, right? <laughs> During the, some of the busiest season. Um, in 2015, Dante Ivey was murdered in Albany. Uh, and so suddenly this, this national crisis was home and really real for us. And we began organizing and confronting elected officials, confronting the police. And frankly, we had to confront some religious leaders who um, didn't, uh, thought, thought a more collaborative approach with the mayor and the police chief was the way to go. Um, they didn't get anywhere at the same time, neither did we. But there were some things that we did that I thought were really powerful and really resonated with my faith experience. Uh, the, the cops are always saying, well, we need to hear and be in conversation with you, the community. You, we want to hear what's going on in your neighborhood. So they want to build this relationship. It sounds really nice. And so what, we wrote up a complaint and said, hey, by the way, five Albany police officers stopped, harassed, chased, and murdered Dante Ivey feet from his home. And we, we're, we want to report. We want to report a crime. And they wouldn't let us in. Right? They didn't actually want to talk to us that much. And so... Dozens of us are outside the police station, and we read it aloud in a liturgical way. It was church there in front of the police station. And then we had marches and actions. Um, in my work, I got involved in the fight for 15 as well, which is uh, poor and low-wage workers working for some of the largest corporations in the world who went on strike. They said, McDonald's, if you're not going to pay us enough to feed our families and enough to secure our, our rent, you're not going to sell any hamburgers today. And they would walk off the job. This is, these are the folks, I don't know about you, when I was in school, working at fast food was looked down upon. I specifically remember teachers mocking the idea that if we didn't study hard, if we didn't work hard enough, we were going to end up working at a fast food restaurant. And so 
working hard to feed your family, working hard to take care of yourself is somehow shameful and embarrassing. And these were some of the bravest people I've ever seen in my life. They were risking everything to fight for their families, to demand a fair and a just and a living wage from a corporation that in their bad year made a $4 billion profit. All of these threads have come together in the past five years for me and the Poor People's Campaign. And I'm going to talk about that a bit more towards the end of the sermon. Um, I saw a nod, maybe you've heard of it before. Uh, but before I get into that, I want to talk about the Bible some more. Because I am a minister and part of the faith tradition. And um, the more I learn about the Bible, the more deeply I fall in love with it. A lot of people learn lots of things about the Bible and are like, oh, this is a complicated, confusing set of texts. And they kind of don't want to have anything to do with it. Or maybe they're a little embarrassed that they kind of follow and try and read the Bible. I learned all sorts of stuff about the Bible in seminary um, that some people would think is really like, would challenge the, the legitimacy of those documents. And I think it's better. Uh, oh, this all makes sense. It clicks for me. So let's talk about this passage in Pentecost. It's a major driver of the early church. It's when those first disciples suddenly get to work doing all the things that Jesus taught them to do. Peter preaches a sermon and he calls people to repent be baptized, believe in Jesus, which sounds easy enough, right? Have the right ideas, say the right things, be saved. But we got to move from abstract and spiritual ideas to the realm of concrete action because they actually did stuff with this immediately. What does it mean to repent and follow Jesus? And the first church knows intuitively. Peter does not in this sermon, which I didn't read, he does not tell them exactly what to do beyond believe in Jesus and repent. And they knew intuitively. So they do a few things. They gather together for meals. They enjoy fellowship with one another. They study and learn in the synagogues. Oh, and one other thing. They reorganize their entire community to abolish poverty. <laughs> they actually sell all of their things and make sure that no one in their community has need. That's a pretty big thing. <laughs> right? Sometimes I feel like we suppress that piece. But all throughout the Gospels, the disciples are depicted more or less as not really understanding what it was that Jesus was trying to teach them. But here it happens intuitively, instinctively. They repent, they believe in Jesus, and this is what they set about doing. Now a little bit of Bible trivia, if you don't know. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are written by the same author. They have a similar parallel structure. You can look into that a little bit more at home, but... I want to refer back because early in the book of Luke, Jesus sets the trajectory of where this is all going. Way back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is really clear to everybody, telling them what he's about. And they struggled with it for a while. But he gives a sermon and he starts by opening the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he reads this. Maybe you've heard it before. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The people are astounded. And what do they decide to do? They try and execute him immediately by pushing him off a cliff. <laughs> Why would people have that response, right? Why is this such a big deal? Now, the common understanding that I've been taught, and maybe if you've been in uh, church, you've heard this kind of thing before, is that Jesus is taking on a divine authority 
and announcing something that the people believed only God could do. And Jesus is saying, today, with me being here, reading and announcing this, I'm fulfilling this. Um, Jesus is claiming to be God by declaring that he represents the year of the Lord's favor. And to the people, that's blasphemy. Now, further, I skipped over a few comments uh, where Jesus tells them that this good news he's announcing is, in fact, for everyone, including people that the Israelites despised. They did not like that. He kind of rubbed some salt in the wound there. Uh, basically saying, this good news from God that you think is only for you, you're actually completely mistaken about what God is up to. So, yeah, you can understand. People got a little ticked off about that. But I actually think there's a lot more going on. Because um, even if the people thought that what Jesus was saying was wrong or obnoxious, or if it's for me, just tell them I got a thing. I'll get it. We've all been there. Come on. Like, uh, we've all been there. Uh, even if the people thought that what Jesus was saying was wrong or obnoxious or blasphemous, he hadn't actually done anything yet, right? What were they so mad about? They could have just been like, oh, this is a, some crank gone on with their day, you know? And people took blasphemy pretty seriously back then. Uh, but, but seriously, an immediate execution? I've got a hard time believing this crowd of people was so fanatically zealous in their belief that this was their warranted response to this young teacher. Something else has got to be going on. So there are two things I think we do with the Bible that really limit our understanding of the text. And I have ex experienced this and encountered this in, uh, in Catholic spaces, in conservative evangelical spaces, in progressive liberal you know, uh, mainline churches as well. I feel like everybody does this with the Bible. The tendency is to individualize a text, make it just about me and my relationship with God, and to spiritualize the text. Take these concrete instructions and abstract them a little bit. Now, it's not necessarily bad to read the Bible that way in an individual or spiritualizing way. It can be really helpful and meaningful to read some text that way. But the problem is, sometimes we only read the text in that way. And actually, I think there are some really powerful social forces in the United States today, in 2023, that want to limit our understanding of the text in exactly those ways. So think of it this way. There's a way in which we're taught to read the Bible and subconsciously add the word spiritual in all sorts of places. So this passage in Luke 4, there's an, it, again, this is just assumed. You know, Nobody actually does this explicitly. But they would read it and say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good spiritual news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim spiritual release to captives and recovery of spiritual sight to the blind, to set, those who are, to set free those who are spiritually oppressed. Now, that word spiritually is not in any of that passage, but that's the tendency we're going to have to read these things. And understandably, because it's really hard to think about these things in concrete material ways. But this is an area where I'm a biblical literalist. I actually think Jesus wants us to do the stuff that he's saying here. So the alternative to individual readings is a collective or a social understanding of these texts. We're supposed to do this stuff together, collectively. It's not just about me and my relationship with God. And the alternative to a spiritualizing reading is a concrete, materialist approach. So, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to go through that passage one more time with a collective and material reading. When Jesus talks about good news to the poor, collectively, the poor as a class of people who materially do not have the necessary means to meet their basic needs like food and shelter 
and healthcare. In the Poor People's Campaign, we talk about 140 million people in this country, and that's a number from before the pandemic. It's actually worse. That's nearly half the population of this country. Are in poverty or just one emergency away? The way of Jesus has got to be good news to that group of people. Not in some spiritual by and by after we die, but concretely and now. Jesus says, release to the captives. And in the United States, we incarcerate, both by percentage of our population and by actual numbers, more people than any other country in the world. Over 2 million people are currently incarcerated. Millions more in some kind of supervised release, probation, or parole. There's something about that that's for us today here in our country. Jesus says, recovery of sight to the blind. And the U.S. is the only developed country in the world that doesn't have some form of universal health care. I've been with people twice that have had medical emergencies and said, please don't call an ambulance. I can't afford it. That is a terrifying space to be in. And it's absurd that we live in a world where that can be the case. Then to set free those who are oppressed, that leads us to the question, who is oppressed in our society today? I think of racism and white supremacy, patriarchy, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, xenophobia and undocumented immigrants, homophobia and transphobia. These are all different forms of oppression, and they are systemic, not simply individual, although that's part of it, but systems that are alive and well today. And then he concludes the sermon with, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's a, a reference to the biblical jubilee, which is a Hebrew Bible instruction it said the ancient Israelites, every 50 years, all debts would be relieved, slaves would be set free, land returned to the original owners. Concrete, material upending of the structures of ownership. And we as a society are drowning in debts. What would it mean for that to disappear? When I was in seminary, I first learned about the Jubilee. The professors would always say, well, obviously that couldn't happen today. And I mean, why obviously? Why is that obvious? <laughs> why can't it happen today? And they did not have an answer for that. So can you begin to see how a collective and a material reading of the text causes us to engage and think about the world in a different way and have tremendous societal implications? Remember, this is Jesus' first sermon. This is his MO. This is what he's about. So the people were upset about the blasphemy, sure, but I think they understood the implications of what Jesus was saying right then. Because if what he's saying is true, then he's bringing concrete, very real good news to the poor, very real healing, very real freedom from oppression. Well, the people who, in fact, benefit from those systems, from that existing system that keeps people poor, that keeps people sick, in fact, profits from it, that keeps people oppressed, keeps people in debt, well, those people wouldn't be in power anymore. Nobody hated Jesus or wanted to kill him because he was nice or compassionate to people who were having a hard time. They hated him and wanted to kill him because the way of life he was leading would end oppression by upending the systems of power that rely on that oppression. So now let's jump back to Acts. The people are moved by the Holy Spirit and they suddenly reorient their entire community's way of living to make sure everybody has what they need. Well, and then what? What happens in the rest of the book of Acts? We begin to see the consequences of that kind of reordering of society. What happens when people begin living in this way? It's an outright crisis for the systems and the people in power. It is a totalizing threat to the status quo. Later in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is founding these new churches. As people begin to live in this new way of sharing and providing for one another, they withdraw further and further from the wider economy. 
They create such a threat to the merchants and the wealthy people who depended on that market exploitation, a riot breaks out. Later in his letters, Paul's most vicious criticism is for the Galatians who want to maintain a racial and ethnic status quo, keep some people out of the community based on where they were born and whether they're Jews or not. They wanted to uphold a racist hierarchical system, but the gospel doesn't have room for that. In his letter to the Corinthians, they're trying to maintain the economic hierarchies of the day, where wealthy church members would eat first and be satisfied, and then poor folks came and dealt with the leftovers. Paul rips them a new one. He's chased from place to place throughout the Mediterranean. He's thrown in prison. He's assaulted, eventually executed, because wherever he goes, wherever he starts these new churches, the dominant oppressive forces sense the threat. That if you treat everybody justly, if people are taken care of by the community according to their needs, then the people in power don't have anything to hold over others. They lose their ability to exploit labor and make profit. And then they're forced to rely on violence to crush that threat. I could go on, example after example in the New Testament. The disciples of Jesus, the followers, the first church, they indict the rich and wealthy and the powerful through their actions. For the disciples, they see no possible way to accumulate inordinate wealth apart from exploitation and oppression. So this way of Jesus is threatening to the people in power. And if the way we follow Jesus today isn't a threat to those same people in power, those same systems, if our way of following Jesus is actually absorbed into the system, co-opted by those oppressive people and systems, then we've probably missed something. The good news of Jesus is not simply that God wants us to be nice to poor people. Nobody gets killed over that. The gospel is not only saying that God loves the poor, that God cares about the poor, but that God is poor. That is who Jesus is. And the people in the systems that oppress the poor are in fact an affront to God and must be overturned. But wait, there's more. The teachings of Jesus, these documents from the early church, they show us what is necessary for us to do to overturn these oppressive systems. Jesus and the disciples and Paul teach a radical inclusivity that breaks down every single barrier that the oppressors use to keep us divided and fighting one another. Religious, ethnic, racial, gender divisions, Paul lays it out. There is no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus in this movement for liberation. I had that. So in order to overturn the systems of oppression which are in front to God, our primary task has to be to build the unity of the poor across every line of division. The ruling class is throwing everything at us to keep us divided, right? As a class, as the poor and working class. And that is our task as followers of Jesus, to break down those barriers and to build that movement that can contend. So what does this mean today? And what about us? I mentioned the Poor People's Campaign before, and that's been the core of my work for five years. But the Poor People's Campaign did not start with us five years ago in 2018. It was actually Dr. King's last campaign. And at the end of his life, he was moving from a conception of civil rights to human rights. They had won major victories. After all of their struggle, Montgomery, Selma, Albany, Georgia, all Birmingham, all over the South, right? The Civil Rights Act had passed. The Voting Rights Act had passed. Johnson had actually initiated a war on poverty. And yet, people were still struggling. And King was recognizing that despite all of the hard-won victories, it was not enough. He actually 
very, very clearly says, we've won easy victories. And that's a weird thing to say after you've been hit by fire hoses and, do- and police dogs. Because at the same time this is happening, and even as Johnson is making historic investments in ending poverty in the U.S., they're sending poor people overseas to kill other poor people in Vietnam, right? Pouring millions and millions of dollars into that. And King would say things like, what good is it to be able to sit at a lunch counter if you can't afford to buy a sandwich? Right? He was connecting racism and poverty. He would say, I'd come to believe we were integrating into a burning house. Right? That, again, despite all of their victories, if the system itself was rotten, what good is integration? And that actually helps us understand some of the black nationalist movements as well. We were like, this system is rotten. Let's get out of here and do our own thing. You know? He identified what he called three interlocking evils, racism, militarism, and poverty. And he began uniting the poor in a new way. The civil rights movement was led by black people and their allies. But this new poor people's campaign, this new conception of struggle, said actually, there's no such thing as an ally. We're in this together. And so not only was he connecting black folks in the South, but he was connecting poor whites from Appalachia, Chicano farm workers, indigenous communities, the welfare rights movement, which was mostly mothers, right? Um, Began building this movement. He understood this movement as church. He called it the Freedom Church of the Poor. And there's a lot of spiritual and moral language in it, uh, but it, it transcends any particular conception of religion. And we know what happened. A year after he gives this famous speech that announces these sort of interconnections, a year after he begins building this campaign in earnest, he's assassinated. He wasn't the only one. Malcolm X had been killed a few years before. Malcolm X had moved from that black nationalist conception. He had left the Nation of Islam and began building a, a multiracial movement. The system doesn't have time for that. He's got to be taken out. After Dr. King, Chairman Fred Hampton of the Black Panther Party began building the first Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, where the Black Panthers worked with a, a poor white group called the Young Patriots and a poor Latinx group uh, in, in the Young Lords, Fred Hampton, and murdered by the police. Right? Today, the crises that King identified were, what, 55 years on from 68? They're actually worse in every way. But we're seeking to build a new movement of the poor, united across those lines of division. It looks different across the country. But we know that the first steps necessary are to identify, develop, and unite leaders from among the ranks of the poor. Because we can't count on just a few charismatic leaders, like Martin or Malcolm or Chairman Fred. We need layers and layers of leaders with the clarity, the competence, the commitment, the connection to advance the movement. So what that looks like in New York, we have an expansive analysis about how all of these issues are interconnected, but we know we can't do everything at once. We're actually very tiny. But with that emphasis on identifying and developing leaders, we take action around issues of healthcare and housing because it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is, what your skin color is, you've got to figure out how you're putting a roof over your head and how you're going to meet your medical needs. And we found those as issues that we can unite people from all sorts of different experiences and backgrounds around and begin to build a fusion movement. And again, it's slow and we're still small, but we're making headway. Here in Pennsylvania, a partner organization called Put People First PA, an incredible organization of the poor, uh, they're doing the same thing. They're part of this Poor People's Campaign. Where my church is, Bethany Mennonite, it's up in Vermont. The Vermont Worker Center is doing the same all around the country. Organization of the poor is happening 
and coming together and beginning to build connections with one another. The standard ways of advocacy and organizing don't actually understand what we're doing. They don't think the poor can be organized. They think you need to have professional advocates who wear suits and ties and lobbies, and sometimes maybe they do a little bit of big public actions, but they don't think the poor can come together and wield power. We organize to confront Christian nationalism. The Poor People's Campaign is sometimes criticized for being this faith-heavy movement. Our national co-chairs are both pastors, but you don't need to be a person of faith to be part of it. You do need to understand that Christian nationalism undergirds and upholds all of these oppressions and needs to be confronted, right? It's a, it's a space of contention in public life. For too long, people have said, oh, let the religious right, the moral majority, have moral language. We say, no, a budget is a moral document. It is a moral issue that people are dying without health care and without housing and without enough food. That Christian nationalism is the true blasphemy, right? It wields the crucified Christ as a weapon to uphold and reinforce those oppressive systems. And it, in fact, crucifies others. Undocumented immigrants, queer and trans folks, our indigenous neighbors. Those blasphemies don't speak for us. We don't fit in the normal political categories. We're not Republican or Democrat because both of our political parties are two sides of the same coin. All right? Yes, there are different, there are distinctions between them. I'm not saying they're all identical. Uh, but what is really remarkable is when you find out the things that they're aligned on. The military budget, it doesn't matter who's in power, up every year. Immigration policy continues the same vicious pathway. It did long before Trump, and it has continued already after him. They do not have solutions to our problems because they actually created the problems. They are, are, are our problem. They benefit from the persistence of these problems. The way forward is not easy, but it is beautiful. This kind of fusion movement, this kind of connection across lines of division, this kind of organized power for poor people is, I, I'm convinced, is the most remarkable thing and that we need so much more of it. I joined this movement because I was tired of being a loser because I was tired of confronting police violence and nothing being changed, of accompanying immigrants to an ICE office for their check-ins and then they don't get to leave and having to tell their family what happened. Tired of half-assed compromises in the raising of the minimum wage after these poor workers are risking everything. Tired of senior disabled folks getting evicted from their homes because some corporate landlord wants to jack up the rent. I'm tired of losing. But I think this, this, this fusion movement, which is rooted in the gospel, right? I think it's the way forward. I think it's the way we win. So we begin with collective study and education, meeting in the synagogues and talking with one another about what we're learning. But first we've got to believe that it's really possible. That's why Peter hones in on the believe and repent piece. Do you believe that a movement of the poor can change this society? Will you believe it? Will you turn away from the oppressive systems that have wormed their way into our brain, that shape everything about us? We can't just extract ourselves and run off into the hills. The monastics have tried that. That doesn't mean we can't learn anything from that. But we need to engage in these systems. We can't just run away. Believe that this change is truly possible. The liberating gospel of Jesus, the good news of power for poor people. Let it begin with us. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.